0: And welcome to Left Coast Wisconsin, a podcast produced by the La Crosse Independent. I'm Rachel Van Alstein, and one of your co-hosts.
1: Hi, I'm Eric Timmons of the La Crosse Independent and co-host of the show. First up today, we have an interview with Ben Prostein about prisons and their impact on rural and urban communities across Wisconsin. Ben writes the Prison Dispatch column for the La Crosse Independent and lives in Crawford County.
2: Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to another episode of the Left Coast Wisconsin podcast. My name is Evan Dvorak. And uh, today I am joined by Ben Prostein, who is among many other talents. um, He he is a writer at the Lacrosse Independent. Uh, He's a herdsman. He's a a poet. And uh, yeah, today we're speaking in a... uh, well, really beautiful old barn, actually, on the property where Ben lives. Um, I don't know, maybe a hundred-year-old barn?
3: I, yeah, I'd estimate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and it's it's it really makes me uh, think of an anecdote that you brought up, I don't know, in, in an article for The Independent or a talk you gave about really how the landscape of southwestern Wisconsin has changed um, over the last, well, 40 years, really, with the, the change, uh, demographic change in farming, um, mm-hmm. cultural change in farming, and incarceration. how that has really um, become an industry in our region. I thought maybe you could start out talking about that.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start on. Um, So, you know, if you kind of, if we were to say jump back 50 years, you'd still have, you know, a large number of small and medium-sized dairy farms in this part of Wisconsin. And what we've kind of seen in the last you know, 50, 75 years even as, you know, a continual kind of out migration from the countryside of, you know, small and medium farmers through various globalized economic processes, kind of getting pushed off the landscape. And what we've kind of seen with rural areas is when they get into these kind of economic recessions, there isn't necessarily a recovery. It's almost kind of like a sustained economic recession. And, what we've also kind of seen, you know, the sort of urban um, correspondent to that would be deindustrialization, which has particularly affected Southeast Wisconsin, um, also kind of the Fox Valley, Green Bay area as well. And so we see this kind of interesting um, connection where you have sort of rural and urban areas, both kind of affected by sort of structural economic changes in the last 50 years. and Kind of what we've seen is a growing number of prisons in rural areas and that are predominantly housing prisoners that are coming from urban areas with southeast wisconsin so this would be kenosha racine milwaukee certainly contributing the most uh number of prisons to these facilities and then these facilities are situated they're placed they've been built in rural areas um and so it, in one way, this is you know a crisis of incarceration, but yet the way it often gets presented in rural areas is that it's economically beneficial because you think about how much capital um, and investment goes into building a prison and then it creates a huge number of jobs. Uh, and so in Wisconsin in the last 25 years, Southwest Wisconsin, we've had four prisons built or established and if i remember right for 2019 you know the combined expenditures of those facilities you know was over 100 million dollars and they were i think hiring over 1000 people and so in, in one way this kind of crisis of incarceration which the burden is being you know experienced in urban areas particularly by people of color um, and yet it's kind of fulfilling these sort of jobs and economics, uh, benefits, um, is how it's presented in, in rural areas.
2: Yeah. And that's, you know, really applicable to just where you and I are sitting right now. Um, we're in Crawford County. Um, I live up in Vernon County, which is right to the north of here. And, uh, you and I wrote an article on this very phenomenon, um, in, uh, the the Vernon County jail, right. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe, you know, in can check out the independent to, to read that story in full but maybe you could bring up how the Vernon county jail is really you know a microcosm of it. something that we see happening at a statewide level
3: yeah so you know the example i was talking about previously i was you know referring to uh state prisons so prisons you know built and maintained uh by the state of wisconsin the department of Corrections. but yeah that article we collaborated on we were looking at this more kind of yeah, that sort of microcosm of incarceration with the county jail, where uh, Vernon County was kind of in this situation where they either had to close down their jail about twenty years ago due to just not being up to code, being you know, a very old facility, and then contracting their incarceration needs with other facilities, or taking the other route towards expansion, and and so they did choose expansion, building a jail beyond their Uh, projected, uh, or I should say their present, you know, demands at that point in time at the late 1990s, early 2000s, and sort of anticipating um, sort of, uh, I I guess, expanding incarceration needs into the future for the county. But that actually didn't happen. And so now they're in a situation where really they're predominantly serving the needs of the DOC because the DOC is in a situation where their facilities are overcrowded. And so the DOC has started these kind of contract relationships with various county jails. So what Vernon County is doing is they're predominantly housing prisoners from the DOC system rather than, um, you know, prisoners from Vernon County. And as you know, when we were researching that article, we came upon, you know, multiple statements by uh, the sheriff. uh emphasizing how this was a good, quote, good source of revenue for the county. Um, and yet when we kind of looked at the budgets, kind of looked at the hard numbers, really what we're seeing is, you know, it just sort of offsets the incredibly high costs that come with running a facility like this. And if I remember right, what the public safety is a quarter of expenses in Vernon County and the, something like that. And the jail might be, you know, 10 percent. Um, and yet it's, it's not bringing in, uh, you know, quote unquote profits. It's really just, it's kind of a, a jobs program for the county.
2: Yeah. And that's, yeah, so that's the thing, it, you know, a few few dozen jobs, um, mostly as guards for the, for the jail, but you know, the problem is that the, you know, the county is on the hook for all the, you know, the overhead of the facility, which is you know, substantial, it's a huge building, um, you know, paying the healthcare. of the the inmates, which is also substantial amount of money Um, and, you know, paying for food and board. And I I think in the contract they're getting like $52 a day from the state to house these folks. Um, And, you know, it'd be one thing to to say, you know, okay, this is a jobs program. We're bringing in these good jobs to Vernon County. Um, But that might not be the case. If you look hard, if you really squint at the budget, that's not the case, but there's also kind of the moral, side of that, too, yes. is like, you know, okay, it's a jobs program, but are these the kind of jobs that the people of our area really want to you know support? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably not the case. You know, you know, you know when you, have I, you and I have talked to community members here, I would say the vast majority of people have no idea that this is even happening in our community. Like when I've mentioned to people, do you know that we're a prison community, that Baroque, Wisconsin is a prison nah. community. People look at you like you know, at are caught in the headlights. You know, we have this image of, I don't know, of Roqua and this area being this very quaint, pastoral, bucolic community. Mm-hmm. But we do have this kind of um, ugly thing beneath the surface, and it's it's something that you know um, we need to really reevaluate. I think as a community and see, you know, is this where our values lie? Do our values lie in incarcerating people? Mm-hmm. Is that something we want to spend you know our our moral capital on but even you know even our physical capital through you know the budget maybe there are better things to spend our money on um, if we're going to have a jobs program in the county there's lots of other things that need to be
3: done yes uh absolutely agree with that and, and i think especially you know our incarcerated populations are very much a, a kind of invisible population you know they're out of sight and out of mind yet um, these prisons, these so-called state-of-the-art county jails, um, you know, they, they are the kind of new monuments of the landscape. You know, we're not seeing a, you know, numerous new farms going up. We're, we're seeing, you know, more of these incarceration facilities than we look in the last 25 years. And, you know, I remember when we did a kind of a prisoner profile for that article, just looking at who was in that facility in June of uh, 2020. And I believe half of the inmates were coming from Milwaukee County. And so and our Kenosha or Racine, so predominantly coming out of southeast Wisconsin. Uh, so once again, there's that whole connection of, you know, we're, we're housing people from these sort of deindustrialized communities on the other side of the state um, to somehow uh, put a bandaid on the sort of agricultural, structural, economic uh, challenges and changes of the rural landscape. And then I know for me, what's a real kind of significant part of this too is when you kind of go deeper into incarceration in Wisconsin and you start realizing too that in Wisconsin, we have a very uh, kind of obsolete probation system that's been on the books for about, you know, almost 25 years now. Uh, truth and sentencing laws, um, which is kind of Wisconsin's foray into tough-on-crime legislation. And it's created this kind of—they ex- no longer refer to it as probation. They call it extended supervision. And, you know, I've talked to former uh, incarcerated people about this, and they emphasize how this is really needs to be understood as an additional sentence, that, yes, you get your prison sentence, and then once you're out, you have your additional— Uh, sentence, um, uh, an additional form of incarceration through extended supervision. Um, It's a very kind of strict system of surveillance, um, and it's created this phenomenon where people end up going back to jail or prison for not even committing crimes, but technical violations like missing appointments. Um, I talked to one former prisoner who, he was on a GPS uh, ankle strap monitoring system, and it was malfunctioning one time. And so the local county sheriff gets this automatic update from the DOC. There's a warrant out for this guy, you know, go, go arrest him. And so they go pick this guy up. They're driving into the county jail. And then, you know, they get a call from the DOC. Oh, that, you know, that was an equipment malfunction. You know, you don't need to lock that guy up. And, you know, these aren't just kind of rare occurrences, uh, crimeless revocations. Are resulting in I think in 2018 that was 40 percent of prison admissions for just a crimeless revocations So you know people often going back to jail for not even you know a new conviction.
2: I think the craziest anecdote from your last article was somebody who had paid their child support.
3: Yes, <laughs> and, and, um,
2: and that caused them to be have a run in. Yeah,
3: yeah. That, that's uh, Ron Schroeder, an, an organizer with uh, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, and his uh, he, you know the the details of that story is um his uh, uh probation officer asked him you know are, are you paying child support and he said well i'm not really sure because you know i'm not i haven't gotten my pay stubs back from my job and it's supposed to get automatically deducted so i just can't you know tell you right now i haven't gotten that kind of information and, and so then he was put on his warrant for lying to his probation officer and it's it's just draconian i mean it really some people really refer to incarceration in wisconsin and there's so many other parts in this united states it's really almost like a humanitarian crisis just an abuse of human rights
2: you know and i would really you know emphasize you know i think you used the term warehousing and that it kind of seems like that is what a facility like the one here in Vernon County is is acting as as a warehouse. Um, you know, we might have this kind of image in our in our minds of somebody being you know incarcerated. Maybe they're like working in a wood shop or they're like you know getting some sort of skills for reentry. But when we looked into the facility here in Vernon County, there's no programming there. Um, there's very very basic. There's like a, I think like a religious services and maybe a Alcoholics Anonymous program. But there you know there's not education opportunities for folks while they're locked up. And, and I think that's generally been the case in this in the system, even at the state level, is we've seen these kind of opportunities being whittled away over the years.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there might be a common perception that uh, someone, you know, in, within the public, that, you know, someone going to prison are, are going to be offered some form of, you know, rehabilitation. I mean, it's I, I'm always very intrigued by the language that the Wisconsin, uh, uses to sort of describe what it's doing. So for example, you know, it's department of corrections and that these prisons, we don't call them prisons. We call them correctional institutions. And a very interesting development um, now is that the DOC, they no longer refer to prisoners as inmates, but as quote, persons in our care. And so that creates i think this image that or at least this is what they're trying to portray is you know they are trying to correct quote correct individuals or offer some form of rehabilitation but i think when we see how things are actually functioning when you talk to formerly incarcerated people you get the pr- impression that really it's it is this kind of warehousing facility um, it's what criminologists and scholars that study it this they refer to it as you know, incapacitation. You're just kind of removing people from society. And maybe just to circle back here, talking about that question of deindustrialization, where, you know, what happens in a place like Milwaukee when a handful, numerous warehouses close down and there's all of a sudden thousands and thousands of people that literally have nowhere to go? They become, you know, a kind of surplus population. And really what we've seen is, you know, the rise of the prison system, it it goes right, it correlates right along with uh, deindustrialization, where this has become a place that's kind of filled with, you know, the surplus populations of our current economic system. And as some other former incarcerated people put it, you know, it's, there's just, there's nothing offered, you know, it's almost like you just can if you don't have the right mindset, if you're not coming in with a certain support structure, uh, within, you know, outside of the prison, you just can atrophy, right. Just sort of, you know, rot away. It's yeah. There's no restoration being offered.
2: Yeah. And, and, and this language that he just brought up, the, the going, switching from using the, the term inmate or prisoner to persons in our care, um, Yeah, it does. It does make make these institutions sound almost like benevolent, you know, like they're like a hospital or like a clinic kind of medical kind of situation. But that obviously we're in the middle of a huge pandemic. So like how how is that translated towards. You know, being being an incarcerated person in in a pandemic time, like how are people holding up in prison situations?
3: Um, What we've seen around all of the country, and Wisconsin is no exception, that some of the worst outbreaks of COVID-19 have been in prisons, along with, you know, nursing homes and slaughterhouses. These are some of the uh, locations of some of the worst outbreaks in the country. And in Wisconsin, um, there's been now reported almost 10,000 cases, uh, was the last uh, DOC report I saw. And, And There are, there is, you know, reasons to believe that's not all the cases. Um, And also the DOC has reported 19 deaths. um, And there's also some kind of muddled information there. You know, the DOC wasn't releasing that information for a while, but so far they have told us that, you know, 19 prisoners have died because of COVID-19. And... This has really exploded, especially in the fall. So we, we kind of saw how the pandemic really started moving into rural areas in the Middle West uh, this fall. And as we you know were talking about earlier, most of the prisons in Wisconsin are located in rural areas. So we've seen just incredibly rapid you know, prairie fire outbreaks in some of these facilities. So we're in Crawford County talking right now. And so the, the prison in Crawford County is located in Prairie du Sheen. And within less than a month, 80% of the prisoners there were infected with COVID-19. In less than a month, they went from zero cases to, uh, you know, over 300, or wait, I think over 400 people in a 500-person facility got infected with COVID-19. And yeah, so, I mean, cr- it, Needless to say, it's a crisis. At the very least, it's a catastrophe. Uh, it really calls in some serious questions of why aren't we changing this system?
2: Yeah, and you know, I, I imagine you know proper you know pandemic hygiene is next to impossible. In, you know, in in a, in a prison situation, uh, social distancing I can't imagine. Um, have you heard you know specific specifically what's happening in some of the facilities in our area
3: yeah so the doc provides you know sanitizer they provide face masks um, but the one thing that the doc really can't provide is physical distancing especially when we consider how overcrowded some of these facilities are so i was talking about prairie du Chien a little bit um previously and if, if I remember right, you know, Prairie has a capacity of around, you know, 400, and they're currently have, you know, 500 prisoners. Uh, if you look at the DOC as a whole, there's about 20,000 prisoners, which is down from 23,000 at the beginning of the year. But still, the capacity of the DOC is something like, you know, 17 000 to 18,000. So overall, you know, that's, quite over capacity, these facilities are very overcrowded um, and it just makes these outbreaks really inevitable when we start to think about it and we've also, you know, I am in communication with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee who they work directly with prisoners to kind of support, you know, organizing within prisons and kind of create these networks uh, between prisoners and those on the outside. And they've been receiving reports, you know, going back to the summer that, and this is across the state, including Prairie du Chien, that guards weren't wearing masks. Uh, And we saw these reports happening in August. We continued seeing these reports into September and October. And the prisoners keep saying this across the state that, you know, how is COVID coming into these facilities? Well, we're all trapped here. You know, the guards are one of the key ways that the virus gets transmitted into these facilities. And yes, it's true that not all guards and not all facilities are necessarily, you know, it's not like, it's total in the fact that all the guards aren't wearing masks, but it only takes a few and the the virus, you know, just plummets through the facility.
2: You know, you mentioned there have been You know reductions in the prison population in Wisconsin, uh, but you know the the system is still at overcapacity. Um, You recently wrote an article for the Independent um, talking about a a listening session, a public listening session you attended uh, virtually um, with Governor Evers and a bunch of other organizations. um, You know, and and obviously some ideas are floating around for what you know Evers could do um, at the state level to start dealing with this really public health emergency. Could you uh, expand on that?
3: Yeah, so at the beginning of the pandemic back in March, uh, before it really started to spread into the prisons in Wisconsin, uh, numerous organizations in the state were urging Governor Evers to um, exercise his administrative powers and grant uh, mass commutations. Our uh, compassionate release, clemency, um, which he does have the power to do as governor. And we've seen other states do this, Kentucky, uh, New Mexico are a couple examples, California. And what was getting proposed and what we've kind of seen happen in other states is you know, releasing people that are within six months to a year of completing their sentence. Um, elderly uh Health vulnerable prisoners. There's a lot of ways to do this where you could significantly and safely reduce the prison population and deal with those issues of overcrowding and actually perhaps get to a situation where you could ensure some amount of uh, physical distancing within a facility. And so that was, like I said, those advocacies were happening all the way back in March Evers and the DOC, they adopted some sort of minimal responses that did account for that drop in the prison population. But as a lot of activists have put it, these are really low-hanging fruits that the Evers and the DOC uh, have reached for. And then we kind of flash forward to the fall, to late summer, where we are starting to see these mass outbreaks in prison after prison. I, I think I've accounted for Fourteen prisons had outbreaks of 100 prisoners or more and so those same advocacies were being voiced once again they were being voiced again and again at this listening session Um, but what Evers is talking about is not what he can do as a governor but talking about what the state can do um, through the legislators this is what Evers kept coming back to he as i quoted him he said you know he understood the issue of commutations is what he said to one person who spoke directly to him but he said it was a small piece of criminal justice reform
2: yeah and you know back in 2018 when when governor evers was running i mean i, I do remember him saying that he supported drastically decreasing the 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 size of the prison population in wisconsin i mean how in why is he not acting on that? I mean, he is the executive of the state. Why is he not acting more forcefully on that?
3: Yes. So Evers, when he was on the campaign trail, he accepted the proposals by various organizations um, to, you know, cut the prison population in half. He supported that as a goal. And so he's been in office, you know, for two years now and really hasn't doesn't have much to show for in the pursuit of that goal. And I know many people within the kind of anti-mass incarceration movement, when COVID-19 hit, they, they thought, well, you know, here is an opportunity for Evers to directly act on criminal justice reform. We know that this system is locking people up for essentially non-offenses, for low offenses related to drugs, um, etc., We know it's a broken system. It's not offering any kind of restoration. You know, let's drastically reduce the population and also, you know, ensure the safety of the people that are incarcerated within these facilities. And so that's, you know, here was this great opportunity for Evers to really reduce uh, the prison population, and it hasn't happened. But what Evers was talking about during the listening session was pursuing criminal justice reform through bipartisan legislation, which many people within the kind of anti-mass incarceration movement were really kind of this as an excuse. Uh, One person I specifically quoted, uh, Shannon Ross, who was a former incarcerated person, you know, he said this is an Evers issue, you know, he doesn't. This legislator is not going to work with him. He's going to have to do something himself. And I think any of us that are sort of observing uh, what's going on in Madison, or really what isn't going on in Madison with the legislator, we know that ever since Ebers was elected, there's been this kind of legislative gridlock um, on all sorts of issues. We have a Republican majority, uh, state senate, state assembly. Um, They've really, in my opinion, continued to kind of practice, uh, you know, Governor Walker's divide and conquer politics. They have no interest in working with Evers. And yet, as we hear from quite a few Democrats uh, on other issues, this call for bipartisan uh, legislation for, quote, working across the aisle, I, I rarely hear Republicans saying this. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of just kicking the can down the road when people are dying. Um, People who are in prison are now getting, you know, a death sentence because of COVID-19. Because, you know, Evers hasn't exercised the kind of power that he has. And I think what we've also seen in this election cycle is that criminal justice reform, at least to Republicans in Wisconsin. We have seen Republican legislators in other states pursue criminal justice reform that reduces the prison population, despite being, you know, part of the grand old party. But in Wisconsin, really seems kind of immune to those kinds of actions, um, even to these sort of fiscal arguments. You know, not you know we've been talking more, I think, about sort of the social and um, uh, the sort of personal, and even. I, moral effects of the system but it seems that even wisconsin republicans are not even moved by sort of the fiscal oper the fiscal arguments of just how absurdly expensive this system is you know if we jump back to february they actually did the republican-led legislator did pass some quote criminal justice reform that really would have expanded penalties would have uh, increase the costs of uh, punishment so to speak uh, the doc estimated that if this legislation was put into action it would entail building two more prisons and we can at least thank evers for vetoing that legislation we know if walker was around it probably would have gone another way even though walker probably would have tried to make sure those new prisons were privatized i think but so we just come back to it you know I don't foresee bipartisan legislation happening in our current political uh, environment. And at the same time, you know, people are really suffering in these facilities. It really is an opportunity to administratively pursue criminal justice reform.
2: You know, maybe you could, you know, it seems strange to me that, you know, Governor Evers, who's the most powerful individual in our state, and he has all these powers at his disposal, you know, and this, this also seems to be something pretty common in the Democratic Party, that they have all of these tools at their disposal and they refuse to use them. You know, I mean, what, why isn't Ebers drastically commuting people? Why isn't he stepping up and using his executive powers?
3: I scratch my head with a lot of people that are working, this, you know, fighting against this unjust prison system in Wisconsin. They're scratching their heads about this. Uh, Evers, you know, has voiced, you know, multiple times his support for reducing the prison population, and we're not seeing anything. So I can really only offer some, you know, possibilities of why that is. I think it's important to recognize that the DOC is a massive institution in this state. We're talking about, you know, its budget is exceeding a billion dollars in a year. That's more money than the state puts into the UW Uh, education system. Uh, You know, a correction officer is the most common State Department position in Wisconsin. There are numerous, you know, bureaucracies and administrations within the DOC. It's spread across the entire state. I think it, you know, there's a status quo, I think, that many people might want to keep going. You know, it is financially beneficial. There's a lot of jobs riding on it. There's a lot of, you know, ways that, you know, the, the prison system benefits other industries. You know, that's something I, I think is important to think about that just keeping that status quo, that business as usual with incarceration. And Evers is going to be up for re-election in two years. And we know that Wisconsin is incredibly competitive. It practically tied, you know, in the Biden uh, Trump 2020 election. And so I know Evers kept saying, you know, I am not, he said this during the listening session, that, you know, this doesn't have to do with me getting reelected. You know, we're just trying to talk about criminal justice reform and what we can do about it. But we have to kind of be aware that that is on the horizon, that the Democrats in this state are through, you know, the kind of gerrymandered situation in the legislature don't have any power. They really just have power in this administrative realm with Evers. And we know that, I mean, I would anticipate that if Evers were to issue mass commutations, we would see Robin Voss and his fellow cronies really weeping on him about that, as they would with any kind of proposal of Evers. I don't think it really matters what he does. They're going to weep on him. And we would see, once again, the kind of uh, dog whistles of tough on crime. We would see Robin Voss and his fellow Republicans going down that road of law and order you know this became a real flagship issue for the GOP and the entire country you know following the George Floyd revolts the uprisings and uprisings in Kenosha they really go down this this law and order gospel which I think we have to be pretty clear is really appealing to fear not facts it's kind of a means to consolidate political power on the right because when we look at, you know, crime levels in Wisconsin, they're half of what they were 30 years ago. They've been essentially declining steadily for 30 years, and yet incarceration's been going up for all the various reasons we've been talking about for this last half an hour. And so, yeah, you kind of wonder if Evers is really just trying to hold on to some re-election hopes. I mean, this is another hypothesis. Uh, I really don't know why he is not taking action on this, especially when people are dying because of it.
2: Yeah, and you know, you know, if listeners are hearing this and they're saying and they're frustrated about the lack of action, you know, at, at the at the level at the state level, um, how how can they take action themselves? Like in the latest article you had for the Independent, you listed all kinds of organizations that are are active in this in this realm. Um, where can people get
3: Yeah, Wisconsin has um, quite a number of groups that are pursuing um, various forms of uh, addressing this crisis of incarceration in the state. Uh, I work and volunteer with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, IWOC, um, the Milwaukee chapter. Uh, They do a lot of work with, uh, you know, communicating directly with prisoners, you you know, hearing what their needs are and, you know, organizing from that standpoint. They also do a lot of work with uh, what they call phone zaps, where they, when they're alerted of various um, abuses of power, of various, uh, you know, crises that are happening within facilities, they'll organize a lot of people on the outside to put a lot of phone pressure on that specific prison. And it's gotten things done before. Uh, that's one organization that's doing some great work. There's also ex-incarcerated uh, people organizing, which is also connected to Wisdom, which is kind of a faith social justice uh, organization, and they've been holding a you know daily vigil outside of the governor's mansion uh, to bring attention to this crisis of COVID-19 within the prison population. And you know, on one day they resorted to even blocking the governor's driveway. Um, and so there's quite a few ways uh, ACLU, American Civil Li- Civil Liberties Union, they have uh, their campaign for smart justice, which has involved, you know, everything from, you know, petitioning to doing a lot of educational work and uh, putting a lot of policy work together. So you know, Wisconsin does have a robust set of organizations for people that want to fight this system to get involved more.
2: Ben Prostein, thanks for joining us today on Left Coast Wisconsin.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Great talking to you.
0: be familiar with the phrase, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, and some of you may not. It has come to mean that we shouldn't beat ourselves up for purchasing what we need to from capitalists in a capitalist system. For example, when you're broke as a joke, grocery shopping at Walmart is what you have to do. It doesn't make you bad for spending your money in a place that makes money off keeping their workers in need of medical assistance and food stamps. Boycotts are useful, but they ignore the economic realities of poor folk and working folk. So I'm working on a spot for left coast Wisconsin where I'll be drawing attention to places and companies that are deserving of our ire or our kudos that should be avoided if possible or chosen over the other alternatives. We all wanna feel good about the places that we spend our money. So we're looking for local reasonably priced places with good labor relations and customer service. If you have a recommendation for either a soft boycott and or a good alternative, please send them to me. I'd love a quick anecdote, too. Give some context for your recommendation, and I might just use it on the podcast. And don't worry about how obscure or local the suggestion is, either. If you know a locally owned ethical pet food shop, send it. If you know of a coffee shop that on the regular offers free things to homeless folks and allows them to linger to keep warm and dry in the winter, we want to hear about that, too. And if you know a place that they treat their workers, the environment, customers, or anyone else like crap, send it and tell us where you shop instead. Send your suggestions and stories to lacrosseindependent at gmail.com and put ethical consumption in the subject line. Thanks. (laughs)
1: Hi, I'm Eric Timmons, and this is my mic drop. We hear a lot about the problems facing our farming communities in Wisconsin these days, with so many small dairy farms going out of business. But we don't hear much in the way of solutions to reverse this trend. But there is a way we can rebuild rural communities, and it partly involves going back to the New Deal and the agricultural programs it created. The first thing to understand about US agriculture today is that right now, scarcity is not the problem, but overproduction is. As much as 40% of food produced in the US is wasted, which is difficult to get your head around in a country where as much as 10% of of the population is food insecure. The overproduction of food is, of course, incredibly inefficient for our economy and bad for the environment. For farmers, it means the market is flooded with cheap produce, lowering prices and making it much harder for small farms to survive. But there's a way around this, and it's one we've used successfully in the past. The Wisconsin Farmers Union calls it supply management. Importantly, this is a system that involves planning and collective action. Before the agricultural programs of the New Deal era were dismantled, farmers were paid to set aside some land, taking it out of production. Reserves and cold storage were also used to hold commodities back and maintain good prices for farmers. There also are minimum prices for commodities that factored in the cost of production to build an income floor for farmers if you've been paying attention to the news coming out of india in recent months you'll know the farmers there have been engaging in an epic protest against modi's government and its attempts to remove price supports for farmers and other protections that are actually similar to those contained in the new deal in that sense and others The struggle of India's farmers is linked to the struggles of our own farmers here in Wisconsin. But back to the New Deal. The programs that launched to balance supply and demand were imperfect, but overall they worked well, creating real prosperity in rural America. But big business didn't like these programs. They'd rather pay farmers less and keep more of the profits. So over time, those businesses, aided by a growing right-wing consensus, worked to roll back New Deal era agricultural policies, culminating in the Freedom to Farm Act, signed into law by President Clinton in the the 1990s. The removal of collective planning has resulted in wild swings in commodity prices, ironically making farmers more dependent on government subsidies. Thousands of dairy farms have gone out of business across the country, of course, including many right here in Wisconsin. But the Wisconsin Farmers Union has been attempting to fight back, pushing for a reintroduction of a supply management system. The union's experts found that if an updated supply management program had been introduced in the 2014 Farm Bill, it would have kept hundreds of dairy farmers in business by increasing their income, and actually saved the government money by reducing the need for subsidies. And the price of a gallon of milk would only have increased by 11 cents for consumers. In conclusion, supply management could help to restore strong rural economies and provide real help to the rapidly vanishing family farm. But it would pose a threat to big business and right-wing ideology. It would show that collective action could work and perhaps serve as an example for other sectors. This is a real solution to the problems in rural America and one we should support. To learn more about supply management, check out the link to the great video on the Wisconsin Farmers Union website. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us folks for today's episode. We wanted to take a little time right here at this point and explain a little bit about what our vision for Left Coast Wisconsin is and what you can expect from us in the future. We are a social and political issues podcast produced by the La Crosse Independent Myself and Eric and Evan Dvorak, who will be the main contributors to this podcast. We are looking for a lot of community input and a lot of community interaction. So please feel free to send us emails or interact with us on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere else that you can find us. We definitely want to hear what you guys think of the show and get story ideas and that sort of stuff from you. Be really, really great for us. So since we have Eric here today, he's the one that approached me about doing this podcast. So I'm just going to put the screws to him for a minute and ask him. So, Eric, what was your vision for this podcast particularly? And, um, you know, where do you hope to see it go in the future?
1: Well, I hope that this podcast can can complement the work we're doing on the lacrosse independent. Um, And I see this as being a sort of a big tent left wing podcast for Um, Western Wisconsin. Um, And I hope we can kind of give voice to a lot of perspectives that maybe aren't heard in mainstream media. Um, You know, there's there's not a lot of progressive left-wing media in this part of Wisconsin. And so I hope we can change that. Um, And I know a lot of people are probably starting to reach kind of peak podcast at the moment, right, because there's so many podcasts out there. But we want this to be a local Wisconsin podcast and to be a campaigning podcast. We want to put ideas out there. We want to be a part of the political process. You know, we want to interview interesting people um, and we want to push for change from the left
0: that makes sense. I know for me, it's important that the interviews that we do and the content we put out is provocative. And I don't mean provocative in the way that it has come to be understood in modern parlance, but provocative in that it provokes people to think. Um, I think one of the things that often happens with left theory, left ideology, and leftists in general is we get sort of pigeonholed by Uh, Mainstream media as to what our values are, what our beliefs are, the things that we're passionate about, and how we feel like we need to interact or advocate for our fellow men and women. And so I think it's important that what we produce here is stuff that people wouldn't, like you said, wouldn't hear in a lot of other places, and also challenges people's perceptions of what the left actually is and who actually belongs to the left and why. I think it's the reason that's so important is there's a lot of common ground, regardless of your self identification, left or right or center, for working class people in the state of Wisconsin. And that means working class people who punch a clock, um, work in factories that are either represented by unions or not, and farmers and small business owners or single, bu- you know, sole proprietorships, people who have you know, are out there struggling every day to make a living in this economic climate and in the state of Wisconsin, we have a lot of things that are common cause. And I think it's important that leftists in general make an effort to reach across that divide and show people where we're not monsters, we're not, um, you know, all ready to like start up the gulags and put everybody in bad pea green clothing and, you know, create a cultural revolution that eliminates everything except a state line. It's not, we're not working towards that kind of future. What we want is equity which is a word that is often not discussed, except in left circles, people tend to replace it with the word equality, which is dubious at best in a meritocratic state, which is what we live in, where equality to, it tends to argue for the quality of access, not actual equity of access, which is a very different thing.
1: Wow. I knew there was a reason that uh, we decided to have you run this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I will be the first person to admit that I am still myself very much learning. I grew up in a, in a very labor oriented family. My father was a union member when he worked at the train company. My mother was a union member when she worked for our Jack Winners. My grandparents were both union or my paternal grandparents were both union members who worked for various companies across Wisconsin, including the old Garmin factory in La Crosse. And my other side, my mom's side of the family, they were farmers. And my great grand, or my grandfather was one of the first organizers of the democratic party in Jackson County, Wisconsin. So for me, it's I've been raised in a certain ideal with a certain ideological bent. I'll be the first person to admit it, but I will also suggest that my grandparents would have not been pleased that I'm a self-identified Marxist. <laughs> this would have been very, very, very controversial. However, the values of of what I understand Marxism and socialism to be are in complete alignment with what I was raised to understand about people being empowered to, to have some kind of control over their future and their economic status and, you know, not to live in fear. And so that's where it comes from, I guess. So you said earlier when you did the, your little spiel at the beginning of this, that you want to see this podcast as a companion to the lacrosse independent. How so?
1: Well, I hope we can use this to sort of kind of, go deeper into some of the things that we write about on The Independent, Um, just like today's interview with uh, Ben Prostein kind of feeds off a lot of the work he's done um, writing about prisons in Wisconsin. Um, And so that's a way um, that we can kind of complement the writing that we do in The Independent. Um, But also, you know, I hope to do through The Independent that we can do more of what I would call campaigning journalism. And so I hope we can use the podcast as a tool for that as well. You know, and that's things like the way we've written a lot of stories about homelessness in the independent. And now we're working uh, with our Wisconsin Revolution, the Cross chapter on a petition around that. And that's how I see that um, journalism can fuel people um, into to taking action. And so I see that this podcast is part of that, um, trying to kind of raise up ideas that maybe don't get enough attention and trying to make people think, about things and see things from a left-wing perspective.
0: So do you have a journalistic inspiration? Anybody in particular?
1: Um, You know, there's all kinds of people I like. um, Ida B. Wells um, was a fantastic kind of citizen journalist. Um, um, I don't know, you know, we... Uh, you know, so many great, great figures from left-wing history were also journalists. You know, Marx was a journalist. Rosa Luxemburg was a journalist. Uh, James Connolly, the great Irish socialist, was a journalist. Um, so, you know, I see, you know, and as the sort of local mainstream media is kind of eroding and, and kind of falling apart, there's there's new opportunities are opening up for, for a different kind of... Um, uh, different kind of sort of journalism that really kind of is more challenging and holds people to account and is more adversarial right um, and so I hope we can be part of that here on this podcast
0: and something a little more focused on I mean and originating from hometown because so much media nowadays whether it's print media or online or otherwise is owned co-opted basically by some kind of corporate entity we are an independent journalism cooperative, for lack of a better word. We survive on those who are willing to support us via Patreon. And so we'd like to invite any of you who find the content here valuable to them and interesting that you are interested in fostering an independent media voice in the Western section of Wisconsin, we would encourage you to take a look at our Patreon. Um, Eric knows a lot more of the specifics about it. But I just really want to encourage people to, to do that to help us out. It would be really useful. There's a lot of things we can do and have already done with the grateful financing of patrons from across the Cooley region.
1: Yeah, this is uh, definitely a 100% grassroots operation. We're dependent on your support to grow this. We have a budget for the podcast right now and we need to get some new patrons in there to keep it going. Yeah, check it out, patreon.com forward slash lacrosseindependent. We have some some goodies and freebies on there, too, that I think you'll like. So please check it out and give us your support.
0: If you contribute at $7 or more on the Left Coast Wisconsin tier, you will be able to get some pretty cool things. One will be early access to this podcast, full versions of the interviews. Our earlier interview with Mike McCabe was very long. I actually was able to get it into the full show, but we'd like to not limit our conversations with the, in these interviews. And if we can, we'd like to be able to provide the full context of those interviews to, to people who are supporting the program via Patreon. We also will have available opportunity for any contributors to submit questions. We will announce who our interview will be ahead of time so that we can get those questions before the interview. So your questions submitted, if you, if you support us at that level, will be submitted for use in the podcast, we will actually ask the person we're interviewing. It's totally, you know, local. These are, you know, Lacrosse yeah. County, it's um, Crawford, right? It's Winona County. It's, I live in Buffalo. We, it, you know, we've got people all up and down the river and hopefully this network of people who are citizen reporters will expand over time and we will have more people that we can, voices that we can add to, to what we do. But yeah.
1: yeah. If there are people out there who want to write for the independent, who have ideas for the podcast, um, yeah, please get in touch lacrosseindependent at gmail.com. And I guess with this podcast as well, we're hoping to expand kind of regionally, you know, not just be focused on lacrosse and really kind of dig into some of those, into some of those rural issues, because that's something for the left. um, You know, the left has just gotten slaughtered across rural America. But I think you and I would both agree that that there's a lot of, uh, fertile ground out there for the kind of ideas that we want to push Medicare for all green new deal, um, a revolution in how we do agriculture in this country and, you know, ways that we can get rural town ta- towns, um, uh, buzzing again with activity. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, I think that's true. There's a big assumption and we've all heard it pundits talking about this since, uh, Trump was elected into office, that rural Americans has turned their back on the Democrats. And the my argument would be is that the Democratic Party, and to some extent, and maybe more so even, the Republican Party has also. They just say things that people want to hear. I think it's all about making those connections and those, those policies. Um, and those values that we all have that are in common, as I said earlier, and we do believe in equity and we do believe in stewardship of the land and we do believe, you know, and that's all of us. That's, that's you know, Wisconsinites used to lead the country in environmentalism and that's not gone away. The parents, the grandparents that participated in those those activities in the, in the fifties, sixties and seventies are still here. So it's not a dead issue. Those are issues that are still near and dear to Wisconsin. I, just, we have a different view perhaps than some, because we want to maintain our hunting and we want to maintain some other access things that, you know, other folks may not, I think there's room for everybody in that tent. I think, and I think that's something that we need to like, Bring a spotlight to. So I'm glad that we we did Ben Prostein's interview because he's speaks very eloquently about that relationship between ur- urban situations and problems and and their impacts on rural Wisconsin that people don't actually notice or pay attention to. Um, and I think that's really valuable. And I think it'll be hope. I'm hopeful that at some point we'll be able to talk about that in terms of immigration as well, because it has a very similar, it's a very similar sort of crossover point. You came to me with kind of a, a an ideal. And I think we have a, a plan to get there. Um, I do ask all of our listeners to like be supportive while we stumble and fall and have our occasional missteps because we will, um, it's a new experience for Eric, for sure. I've done a couple previous podcasts, but nothing at this level. If people stick around, so listeners, when you stick around, I hope you will find that we have a lot to offer you and um, perspectives that you hadn't considered before or reinforcement for feelings and thoughts that you've had yourself for some time and just not really known how to, how to engage with that. So hopefully you will find some common ground with some of our guests and with us. Hope to see you in two weeks. Left Coast Wisconsin is hosted by Anchor and available on the following platforms. Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public, with more to come. Please follow the Lacrosse Independent on Twitter at lacrosseindy and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lacrosse Independent. If you like what you're hearing and want to support us and our work, follow us at our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash independent and look for the Left Coast Wisconsin tier. Our theme is Little Hat, written by John Nokovic and performed by Bojo's Mojo and used by permission of John Nokovic. All other music and sound effects were obtained at zapsplat.com and are used under General Licensing Creative Commons.
1: Audio editing and production, Rachel Van Alstein. Production, copywriting and talent, Eric Timmons, Evan Dvorak, and Rachel Van Alstein. This has been a La Crosse Independent production, all rights reserved.